This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. We're continuing our new monthly series looking at the Convention on Biological Diversity post-2020 framework process. And on this episode, we want to focus on the recent meeting in Geneva to negotiate this framework. So many are reporting that the two weeks of negotiations to establish the draft of a new global deal to reverse the loss of wildlife and habitats have been branded, and I'm quoting here, a major disappointment after countries failed to agree on any new biodiversity targets. So what exactly went down in Geneva and is there hope in reaching targets or even an overarching mission for the convention? I'm going to discuss this and more with Julian Hyde, the General Manager of ReefCheck Malaysia, and also Jasmine Mohamed Saad, a policy consultant with ReefCheck Malaysia. Welcome both of you. How are you today? We're good. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you for having me, Juliet. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. So, Jasmine, new person to the show. We're quite excited. Let's get, let's get to the bottom of this. Um, so, we know that in 2019, uh, a report by the UN biodiversity experts said that one million species could disappear in the coming decades. Am I correct? And that, of course, has raised fears that the world is entering its sixth era of mass extinction in the last half a billion years. And so we know last month, as I mentioned, the first in-person UN biodiversity negotiations were held. Um, this, of course, since the pandemic hit. Um, and government officials from around the globe met in Geneva from the 14th to 29th of March. I guess, you know, just for clarity's sake, what was this particular meeting intended for? Uh, Julian, you want to go first? Yes. Well, I think it was meant to try and thrash out the details of the draft post-2020 framework, which was published some time ago. Um, it was very vague in places. Uh, there were some numbers in there that people were saying, how did they arrive at that number? And what does it mean? Um, and so the, this was the first opportunity, as you said, first face-to-face meeting uh, for two over two years, uh, which I think is it's important that we remember that because I think what we've seen from Geneva is that face-to-face meetings are actually quite important. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do so much over Zoom. You can have maybe technical meetings and discuss technical issues, but at the end of the day, you've got to you've got to face your adversary, as it were, across the table and, and get down to the nitty gritty. Now, on the details, um, I'm going to let Jasmine comment on that because she was the one staying up till two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, listening to the conversations in Geneva. So, so Jasmine, I don't quite know how you survived, but <laughs> give us yeah. your thoughts on that one. Yeah, thanks, Julian. Yeah, um, it was an interesting discussion. And then um, I think it was the first for the Secretariat as well, um, since it, it, it was since uh, two years ago that they had in-person meetings. So there's a lot to, to tackle. Mm-hmm. So they had few parallel working groups. So most of the comments from the countries are on administrative basis. Um, countries did not have enough time to negotiate. And then uh, working groups were done consecu- uh, in parallel. So they have to juggle between their representative to, to, to other working groups. Okay. Um, besides the administrative disappointment, <laughs> um, a lot of the scientific uh, content were not uh, able to be negotiated with. Countries give their statement, but then there were not enough of time to really discuss it and have a consensus. So we end up with uh, the whole document being bracketed for those who are unfamiliar with the processes, bracketed means it's not finalized, then it will be brought onto another meeting, which will be in Nairobi. 
Right. Okay. Yes. I think um, somebody was describing it like if this was a book, this is not even the the first chapter. It's no. like the, it's like the forward. Because they can't even um, agree on the actual content, the scientific backbone of it. Okay. All right. I mean, I mean, from what I've been gathering, um, okay. Yes. So you've you've also um, said that that's true. But um, f- what I've been reading from news reports, discussions, everything. You know, this, like you mentioned, they're going to have to meet again before the UN Biodiversity Summit later this year. So there was this article that I was reading in Nature and um, in Nature magazine, and apparently a lot of the disagreements stem from financing. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so initially, uh, the commitment calls for uh, 10 billion funding per year. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the developing countries felt that that's very low. And there's discussion now that uh, it has been increased to at least 60 billion per year or even 100 million. Uh, but most of it are committed by developed countries through various coalitions. One of the bigger coalitions is called High Ambition Coalitions. Uh, it has, I think, more than 100 members already, um, except for Malaysia. Um, and then when you talk about money, um, developing countries are a bit sensitive in terms of how to access that that money and what's the procedure like. And they, they felt, based on past experiences, will they be dictated once they receive the, the money in terms of how they want to use the money. So there's a lot of um, a more detailed discussion in terms of implementation mm. of it. Um, it is is one thing to commit to funding, but then again, how do we use that money and what's the, what's the conditions that's tied to the money? Yeah, a bit of context here, I think, Julia. Um, when we, Malaysia is one of what 17 mega biodiverse countries in the world, mm-hmm. right? So if you want to conserve biodiversity, we're the people you have to talk to. Right. Okay. We and 16 others, of course. But why? What's in it for us? Okay. Yes, there's the global, we need to protect biodiversity. We get that. But the emphasis is all on us to do that, right? Because we've got the biodiversity. Well, why should we do this ourselves? Can we do it ourselves? So, you know, the issue of funding is not a question of the rich country giving to the poor country, right? This, yeah. this is, let's not put ourselves in that inferior position like that. We have the biodiversity and we need help to protect it because we can't do the whole job ourselves. Mm-hmm. So when we, we just, Jasmine's just thrown three figures out there, 10 billion a year, 60 billion a year, 100 billion a year. So what's it going to be? How much money is the world prepared to put on, on the table for those 17 mega biodiverse countries to actually take action on these very complicated targets? Um, and what are the conditions attached to it? Because, we, you know, we don't want to say, well, we'll give you the money, but you have to do this, you have to mm, do that. Yeah. You know, we talked last time about the difficulty of this 30 by 30 target. Yeah. That hasn't gone away. That three-line target is now 17 or 18 lines long with that bracketed text that uh, Jasmine was talking about. Yeah. This country wants to say this, this country wants to say this. How do we resolve those differences, uh, I think, is critical to the next two rounds of meetings. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note also that uh, as developing countries, I mean, uh, historically, it's the developed nations that have contributed the most to, let's say, climate change or to uh, deforestation and things like that. Um, And so that's why there's this, like, who, how much is enough, right? Who, how much responsibility should each side take? And that's why all these, uh, these, these, I guess, disagreements happen as well. Am I correct? Yeah, I think you are. Uh, I think there's a certain extent to which some of the developing or less developed nations are, are feel as though they're going to be leaned on 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've got to protect your biodiversity. Well, you didn't protect yours. <laughs> yes. But let, that gets political. So let's not go too far down that okay. rabbit hole. I think let, let's stick with the we have a process, we have a set of draft targets. How do we get from here to there? And what does it mean for Malaysia? Okay. All right. And um, just very quickly, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, I think, Jasmine, also, like, you know, there was a a lot of the disagreements also uh, were because there were questions on the scientific basis of it. I mean, is that something that came across, you know, as well in in what you observed? Um, Not really, actually. Um, Most, the majority of the countries agrees to the 30% target. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the manner of how it's going to be implemented because there's a lot of confusion between 30% target. Uh, is it a global goal? Um, not to say is it a global goal. It is a global goal. Sure. Uh, but would that be translated to national goals? So that, that part of the translation uh, of the intention is not clear. Okay. All right. Uh, Julian, anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, actually 30% is becoming uh, a, a little bit uh, what's the word, low, um, there are some studies which are showing that some countries should save more than 30%. Uh, some South American countries, I think um, uh, Peru or Costa Rica, they're having to say, they're looking at saving, uh, protecting 51% of the bi- their biodiversity because that is what makes sense in terms of the science of protected areas. So we've almost gone beyond the 30% before we've even agreed it. Mm, okay. So where do we go from here? All right, let's go for one quick break and then we'll come back and see yeah, what, you know, what happens now. Uh, I'm speaking today to Julian Hyde. He's the General Manager of Reef Check Malaysia and Jasmine Mohamed Saad. She's a policy consultant with Reef Check Malaysia. We're looking back at the um, talks that the, the recent meeting in Geneva, which was held to negotiate the Convention on Biological Diversity post-2020 framework process. Uh, apparently it didn't go too well. So we're going to find out uh, how, you know, where do we move on? How do we move on? from here. Uh, You're listening to our new series, Biodiversity for Malaysia on Earth Matters. Keep it right here on BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's our second episode of our new series, Biodiversity for Malaysia. And we're looking at the UN Biodiversity Talks, which were held in Geneva uh, to negotiate the Convention on Biological Diversity post-2020 framework. Joining me to do that are Julian Hyde and Jasmine Mohamed Saad. Julian is the General Manager of Reef Check Malaysia. Jasmine is a Policy Consultant with Reef Check Malaysia. Uh, thank you again, both of you, for joining me today. So, um, you know, we were talking about... I guess, you know, some of the issues that that cropped up at this meeting in Geneva, right? Um, And I guess, you know, campaigners have for years called for this deal, right? I mean, they want something similar to the Paris Agreement, right? Um, Are we any closer to it, do you think? I mean, looking at the process, I mean, the progress that's been made so far. And and I guess, you know, what's at stake, just, just for clarity's sake, you know, what's at stake if we don't reach some sort of consensus? I think uh, Jasmine can speak to the the actual process itself and how, glacial it was um i think this we must remember a couple of things negotiations like this are always complicated right you've got 193 nations in the un and they all want to have their own say um so that that's a truism secondly uh like we said they, they haven't been able to get together for a long time but thirdly we have two more bites at the cherry you know, we've got a draft document it's very drafty it's very wordy we have two more opportunities in nairobi and coming to, to get it right so i'm hopeful but I think, Jasmine, the horse trading that was going on during the Geneva meetings, do you see that being overcome in the next few months? And do you see us getting towards the final draft? What, what's your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, um, yeah. Again, like you say, it's the first time that everybody uh, meet with each other, and then it was the first time that um, countries get to listen to what other countries think about the document. So, in general, the process have been very helpful. Uh, no doubt, is all bracketed, uh, but but even the secretariat and the developed countries are aware now of what developing countries are thinking of and their opinions and whatnot. So a lot of recommendations have been taken into consideration. Um, I I hope um, that the Secretariat will figure out a process in terms of negotiation, not just collecting countries' opinions um, by, by Nairobi. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic because countries are aware that we need to conserve the biodiversity. We have the last chance here, I, I would say. Mm. Um, I hope the countries will take this, this very seriously. And by the time uh, COP15 comes, um, fairly uh, most of the contentious um, items would have been dealt in Nairobi. So I'm hopeful. <laughs> Okay, all right. I mean, it's good to hear that. And of course, the call is for 30 by 30, right? Protect 30% of the world's land, but also the ocean area uh, by 2030. Um, I think, you know, from what I was reading, a lot of the campaigners for marine biodiversity and coastal biodiversity, they, they tend to say that forests get all the attention. Um, so there's... <laughs> This is what I was reading. I don't know. You guys tell me. Um, and uh, I think at COP26, there was a more concerted effort to, to you know, back the inclusion uh, of this target. Um, and do you think that's true, though, that, that oceans don't get enough attention in these sorts of talks? Um, what are your thoughts? Administratively in Geneva, um, not, not in, on, on principle um, and actions, but administratively there, I don't know whether it's intentional or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> more, the coastal and marine resources bit uh, was not given a lot of um, time, not attention, time. Time, okay. And uh, Yeah, so countries uh, um, raised that point um, and would just refuse to pass anything off until it's been discussed. So, um, so even before Nairobi meeting has been agreed on, countries have already asking for another meeting to discuss that particular area. So it's not being given less attention, it's just the time. Okay, okay. So. Uh, yeah, I think, as you said, Julia, once again, Marine gets the short end of the stick. <laughs> um, a colleague of mine was in a meeting with a, with a number of fellow NGOs in uh, Sabah recently, and she was one of 10, uh, the one of 10 that's working on Marine issues. As she said, everybody else was talking about trees. Okay. okay. So we're definitely not getting the attention we need. Okay, but we do know that a healthy planet without a healthy ocean, I mean, what's the point, right? I mean, climate change, ocean change, basically one and the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, and that's why we're having this conversation because some people get it, but I think a lot of people still just simply don't understand how important the oceans are. Uh, hence our, this, this campaign this year. Mm -hmm. yeah. About 50% of the oxygen we breathe comes from the ocean. Just think mm -hmm. about that for a minute, right? Uh, a lot of our food comes from the ocean. Uh, the ocean absorbs a lot of carbon dioxide. So this idea of uh, conserving it, and if we think about the 30% of, well, let's say 30% of our coastal ecosystems, how many jobs does that create? How many livelihoods does it support? And how many families uh, are fed by the, by the oceans? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Definitely. And I think that's why, you know, there was also an open letter I was reading about um, created by the IPLC Marine Conservation Organization, uh, Blue Ventures. And um, this was signed by fishers, farmers, conservationists, environmentalists, human rights advocates, scientists even. And basically, you know, they call for a clear inclusion of human rights in this emerging um, biodiversity goal, right? I mean, this 30 by 30. And I think that's very important, right? The human rights aspect of it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Jasmine and I were talking about this earlier this morning. Um, the the idea of including human rights into the treaty, I think, is quite new. Mm-hmm. Um, so let, let's just set that aside for a second. IPLCs, first of all, uh, I think they are underrepresented in uh, treaties like this. Look, local communities, we work on Polatium and we've been working there for years. The local communities basically are the natural custodians of the resources of the island. It's their island. They live there. They know the island. They understand its ecosystems. They know where the food comes from and so on. So first of all, they're the custodians. Secondly, uh, they have a lot of local knowledge. Uh, I remember when I was living on the island, my boatman would take a a trip to to an island and then during the dive surface interval, he would go and pick leaves from the trees to take home for his wife to cook with. I'm like, it leaves, wow. you know. Yeah. So it's a lot of local knowledge. And thirdly, the local communities are the ones who are most impacted by protected areas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you come along, government comes along. Let's, let's just say, for example, we're going to expand our protected areas. Where to? More islands. People live on those islands. So how do we, how do we bring them into the conversation? So I think including IPLCs, Indigenous uh, peoples and local communities, in the discussion is very important. Whether or not human rights should be introduced into a target on biodiversity is, I'm still oh, not sure about that one. For me, we have enough problems already trying to sort out this biodiversity treaty with the existing discussions on targets and national considerations. To introduce human rights into that framework at this late stage, I think would, would stymie the whole process. I think it's something that we need to recognize that is incredibly important but has to, let's do this deal first uh, and then make sure that there are mechanisms to include IPLCs, which will get part of the way to addressing human rights. But just in terms of the process of finalising this this, uh, treaty, I think it will be, I think it will create a lot of distractions and and will will result in a weaker treaty overall, I fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jasmine, how about you? What do you think about that? Yes, I do agree with Julian. Um, and in fact, um, if I'm not mistaken, the last target, Target 21, they did include uh, local communities, um, IPLC's um, concern. Mm. But to what extent that has been discussed, I am not so sure. But the intention is there. And I think in terms of implementation, once you go down the, the, the details on how to implement it, then there's, uh, there's a lot of approaches, tools, and uh, whatnot to, to apply to that principle. Um, just the general awareness that we have to uh, consider IPLCs is, is good. Okay. All right. Um, I guess, you know, the next question I want to ask then is what happens here? What happens now? Right? I mean, like you said, uh, Julian, we are one of the 17 mega mega diverse uh, countries in the world. Now that these <coughs> talks have sort of stalled and I mean, of course, there's going to be more talks. But what does all of this mean actually for Malaysia? You know, I mean, what's going to happen? Um <laughs> reading the tea leaves. Okay. Um, I think one of the things that came out of this whole conversation, uh, Jasmine, correct me if I'm wrong, but there seems to be a sense that the 30% target in a general sense is not an issue. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Most nations kind of say, yes, we understand the science behind it. Uh, the science is behind it. We understand that a target like that is necessary, but we may not be able to sign up to such a target ourselves. Um, you know, the previous 10 years, uh, the, the decade, the UN decade on uh, biodiversity, uh, the, they had the Aichi targets. And one of those was to protect 10% of our marine estate. Well, we only got to 5%. We only got halfway at that target. Mm-hmm. So Malaysia, the Malaysian government is, is legitimately saying, why do we want to sign up to a 30% target when we couldn't even make a 10% target? Right. Right. That, that's a that's a very legitimate concern, not to mention all of the other issues about financing and so on and so forth. So, but but in general, the thirty percent is is well understood and it's it's kind of accepted. So we need to get from a position that says we recognise the thirty percent, but we have our own national considerations to take into account about you know our capacity, our capability, and so on. Okay. Um, and there's a funding issue. So mm-hmm. those those are the key things. We know. How do we get thirty percent? And, and national circumstances uh, and funding to to the final wording of a target. Like I said, the original three-line statement became 17 or 18 lines long with bracketed text, and it, it was a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, our negotiating team needs is, is under quite a lot of pressure. I, I don't envy them this task. Um, if you were to ask me what my recommendations would be, I think with it, let's have a – Let's try and have a consultation either locally or even regionally through ASEAN and say, what do we think is realistic here? And what do, what do we go back to the table with? Yeah, we agree to 30%, but there's got to be a funding mechanism and it's got to be free and fair and equitable and understood and not too many conditions attached to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jasmine, you, what about this question of you know local, local needs or, or local concerns? How, how would we address that one in future negotiations? Yeah, it's basically talking to them, <laughs> um, asking them um, what what do you want to see happening, and um, uh, given given the money, so it should it should not come with a lot of conditions. Yeah. Um, so I think in at the country level, a lot of con- consultation needs to be done, not just at the high level, um, part of the stakeholders so we have to go down to the local communities as well and simplify the language but then it is an important consultation process that needs to be done uh, taking into consideration the science the economics uh, and social uh, perspective um, mm. if given if it's a regional voice I think it will be a stronger stronger message to okay. be convened okay. yeah you you asked earlier on Juliet what happens if this uh, if, if a deal isn't done yeah uh, and I think we we skipped around that. I think one of the problems is that if the treaty gets very watered down, the language, it, it perhaps won't be taken as seriously as we might want it to be. Uh, if, if let, let, Let's say, for example, the developed nations say, we want 30% mm-hmm. and we'll give you some money. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then the developing nations say, well, we don't mind the 30%, but we want national circumstances in there. So you'll have this, t- well, no national circumstances if you want money. Well, you don't get money unless you, so, so we're, we're into the, the very much the nitty gritty of the wording. But the concern is, of course, that the, the, the developed nations won't put the money on the table and therefore we won't be able to do as much as we need to be able to do. Now, this this question of uh, national considerations is actually included elsewhere in the in the framework. Anyway, okay. uh, there is a section which talks about recognizing that conservation of biological diversity is a common concern, uh, and its implementation should be guided by 
principles of equity and common but differentiated responsibilities. Now, that's what Malaysia and the other developing nations are asking for. They're saying, yeah, we recognize the 30%, but you've got to recognize this issue of common but differentiated responsibilities and national circumstances. So maybe we can find a way to say, look, you don't need to include that wording into the 30 by target, 30 by 30 target specifically, because it's in the preamble for the, for the, for the treaty. It's understood. It covers all of the targets. We don't need to keep putting in national circumstances here, national circumstances there, because it's in the, the very DNA of the treaty. So maybe there's a way to find a way between all of these bracketed texts and these ideas by acknowledging this and saying developing nations, the biodiverse nations, have the right to include national circumstances in whatever treaty is finally agreed and their own national policy, which is what follows this, right? This is just the international level. We've got to then have our own national targets that we need to set. So I think we need to get that into the conversation as well, right? Let, let's, let's, let's agree what we're arguing about here. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess for you, Jasmine, you know, for this, this framework to be successful, what do you think it must include? What, what, yeah, what are the most important things that need to be in it? Um, the voice of the countries, because we are talking about the global um, concern here, so we need to listen to everybody. Um, so the statement that Julian said that um, the national circumstances bit, um, is the, in the preamble itself, it is a product of the negotiation itself, because so many countries have raised that, and uh, this particular text has been crafted. To, to reflect that. So I, I guess it's one good thing that came out from the uh, negotiations that they, people, they actually listen. Uh, it's a manner of um, arranging those texts um, that becomes very tedious. Um, but, but the voices of the countries are being heard and hopefully in Nairobi we will be more um, positive outcomes will be, will, be, will be achieved. I'm hopeful. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, that's good to hear. And I guess, you know, that's where we stand right now, right? I mean, we are just waiting to see what happens uh, in Nairobi because, I mean, yes, we couldn't agree on any goals now. So these additional discussions will take place yeah. uh, in June in Nairobi. Am I correct? Uh, yes. Okay. And then hopefully the Conference of Parties or COP15 is going to be held in China in um, possibly August or September. That's kind of where we are right now. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. I, I guess, you know, I always ask you this, uh, Julian, um, and I'm going to ask you as well, Jasmine, you know, for regular folk like us, you know, not really involved in all of these negotiations, or it just sounds like, you know, what is all of this happening? It's happening at the global stage. But why is it important for all of us to know about this? Why is it important that we also, I suppose, have a voice in, in you know, uh, in all of these sorts of discussions and these sorts of um, decisions that are eventually made? Uh, Julian, you want to go first? Yeah, we, we, have, we should have a voice because we have a stake in it. Um, it, it's look. I, I, my favorite analogy about biodiversity is like an aeroplane rivets. Right, an aeroplane's got many, 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 many rivets, and if you lose a rivet, it's not going to make a difference. But if you start losing too many rivets, the whole thing falls apart. Okay, and I think the biodiversity is kind of a difficult concept to, to to get hold of. But if you think of it in terms of all of those different species have a role in the global ecosystem, yeah. and if we start losing species, then what stops happening is that the ecosystems stop generating those ecosystem services which we need for our lives and livelihoods, food, fresh air, clean water. It just stops. And, and so degrading those ecosystem services by you know, losing biodiversity is not in our best interest. Mm -hmm. So we have a, you know, everything, everybody has a, a role to play. Everybody should have an interest in this uh, process. 
Uh, Jasmine, anything you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, one thing that struck me would be um, if we could convey the message to the general public that um, whatever activities that we, we are doing on land, it will eventually go uh, into the rivers and into the oceans. And a recent um, research findings that um, scientists have found microplastics in our human bloodstream. That's so true. we are ingesting plastics now. <laughs> so it, it, it comes down to our own um, health, actually. Um, that is our concern. That's everyone's concern right now. So um, I hope people would understand. Um, for example, even seafood, right? Um, the sizes are getting smaller. Uh, species are getting much harder to find. And the shellfish that our parents used to eat were huge, gigantic. Nowadays, we can barely get any. Mm-hmm. So it, if you think about that, and um, I, I hope the public would understand and. There's a lot of youth actions and activities are already um, being 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 led by the youth themselves. So it's a good um, development. I mean, it, it, Jasmine talks about seafood just then. Uh, yeah. We're working with um, with some colleagues in uh, the south of Johor, uh, looking at the seagrass meadows there, and we're talking to the local community that feeds itself from these seagrass beds, and they are telling us that over the last few years the seagrass beds have become smaller and the abundance of marine life has reduced. Sure. So their food source is disappearing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it's not their only food source, but it's a traditional food source. Their food source is disappearing because we are damaging the seagrass meadows, right? Yeah. So number one, they run out of food. Number two, the seagrass meadow produces a lot of wave protection. You know, it slows down the waves, so you get less erosion. It's less likely to flood their villages. So there's two very good reasons why just in one small, small location, the decline of the seagrass meadows is having a very direct impact on people and their lives and their livelihoods. Um, it's all very well for us sitting in our air-conditioned offices in Kuala Lumpur. Mm-hmm. Not everybody does. Some people are out there in, in, in nature, and they are seeing these changes on a daily basis. We all have to stand up and take note of what's going on. Okay. Couldn't have ended better myself. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Julian Hyde. He's the general manager of Reef Check Malaysia and Jasmine Mohamed Sa'ad. She's a policy consultant with Reef Check Malaysia. We were talking about the, well, the little progress that was made at the most recent UN Biodiversity Talks, but there's still hope. Jasmine is still hopeful. I think Julian is also still hopeful. Um, we'll find out what happens in Nairobi in June. Uh, but in the meantime, if you'd like to get educated about this or you'd like to find out more about this, do head to the, uh, the official website. That's cbd.int if you'd like to find out more about this convention. And if you'd like to find out more about Reef Check, just head to reefcheck.org. And if you miss any part of this interview or any previous Earth Matters interviews, you can always download the podcasts at bfm.my earth or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters. This has been Biodiversity for Malaysia on Earth Matters, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.